Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Fantastic. I hope you've all had a good week. Ted is just extricating himself. This is our second church service for this morning. Most of you missed up the first one. It took place at about 10 o'clock at my house in the living room with many, many Barbies in attendance. I just heard kind of, I was busy doing some DIY work this morning and I heard some noise coming from the living room. I went in there and there was a full-blooded church service going on. All the Barbies were in attendance. They were going big in the praise and worship. The Barbies were jumping up and down. They were singing, you know, if he goes to the left, then we go to the left. And there were rivers of living water flowing out of the Barbies. And they couldn't find a lion anywhere. So there wasn't a King Judah, but they found a sheep. So all the little Barbies, little baby Barbies came to the front and they called King Sheep. And then the Israel Hutton song started playing and then they all went out and there was just a full-on church service. And then next thing, Father Abram was playing. And I don't know what else they were doing in Kitty's church, Barbie church, but it sounded fun. And now we're here with you guys as well. So I'm just going to try and replicate the faith my kids had this morning. And if we sort of half get there, we'll have done well. And suddenly I'm getting really warm. Awesome. We're carrying on. I know last week we sort of took a pause because it was Pentecost. And it was worth just celebrating the Holy Spirit. But we're carrying on sort of in the third part around giving feet to our faith. We started in the first week and we looked at that passage that faith without works is dead. One may show, I'm going to show you, one may come and say to us, I'm paraphrasing just a bit, that I will show you my faith apart from my works. And James's response is, well, if you do that, I will show you my faith by my works. In our first week, we looked around that a little bit. And then the second week, we looked at Habakkuk, Nehemiah, this phenomenal leader, as almost a textbook example of somebody who had feet to his faith. And just before I forget, I saw just before kind of church started this evening that we've got a family meeting planned again for tonight at 7. Uncle Cyril wants to speak to us. Um, so please, if you're not on the church's up WhatsApp updates group, Please just scan that little QR code that's at the coffee station um, on your way out, just so we can keep you updated if there are any regulations or regulatory changes that affect our services. Um, we're not quite sure what's going to be said tonight, but if you can just be on the updates group, then we can get all of the information to you. Um, okay, so we looked at, at Nehemiah and this incredible leader. We saw that he just got so much right. And we looked at the first three chapters only of the book of Nehemiah, where this man comes and he has this burden. He has this thing on his heart. He sees something that he believes need to change. He has a, a vision stirring within him. My favorite definition of a vision, it's a mental picture of what could be fueled by a passion that it should be. And this passion drives him to wait on God. We spent a bit of time talking about the fact that he was waiting. It took about six months from when he heard that it wasn't going well and he started getting this dream in his heart to go back to Jerusalem six months before the king approached him. Or well, he was at the king and the king asked him, now what's wrong? And as he was waiting, it was an active waiting. It was waiting that was characterized by prayer and by fasting. He was seeking God. He wasn't just waiting one day for God to wake up. He was actively engaging his faith, praying, seeking God. We also saw that he was planning in the time. Because when the king said, what do you want to do? Nehemiah knew exactly what he wanted to do. He said, this is what I want to do. And when the king said, okay, that's great. You can go and do that. Then he said, well, okay, I'm going to need letters allowing me to do this and this and letters to this person. And this is everything that I'm going to need to be able to do the task that is in my heart. He'd been planning throughout the whole process. And then when he came to Jerusalem, he took his time. He respected the leaders that were there. He invited them into the process. 
He didn't come as this dominant figure. He was not a governor of Judah. He didn't come telling him what to do. He came with humility. And then we ended by seeing that he wasn't distracted by the opposition that was raised. That as he started building and rebuilding the wall, some people were upset, some of the sort of the, the foreigners living in other areas of Judah, and they started sending messages to him, and he didn't allow that to distract him. And we sort of saw a glimpse of this incredible leader that Nehemiah was. The way in which he began this project of rebuilding the walls all around Jerusalem. And today we're going to carry on and we're going to start in chapter 4 and look at the next two chapters in the book of Nehemiah, asking these two parallel questions. What does it look like to have feet with my faith? What does it look like to have a person, to be a person filled with faith, but to have the accompanying works together with my faith? The parallel question to that is, how can I lead as a faithful leader? Many of us here today are leaders in some way. Perhaps we're leaders in our work environment. We're leaders in our family. We're leaders in our, our studies, in our study groups. We're small group leaders. We're leaders in some capacity. We're growing in our leadership. And part of what we're wanting to do this afternoon is to say, what does it look like to be a faithful leader? What are some of these things? that I can learn from Nehemiah, from his book, from his example, that will equip me and empower me to lead in a way that glorifies God. And so in chapter 4, where we pick up the story, we ended in chapter 3 last time, Sanballat, he was this guy who was super upset with what Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem were doing. He was upset that the walls were being rebuilt, the city was being fortified, it was made safe. He was an enemy of the people of Jerusalem. and so. He didn't like the fact that they were rising up and not only becoming a power, but being able to defend themselves again, getting their own form of identity. And so Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite who was standing beside him remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed. I love this response from Nehemiah. There are people on the outside ridiculing, scoffing, bringing accusations, saying that this is never going to happen, kind of laughing at the work they are doing. And I wonder if, when was the last time, and I don't want to ask if you've ever been, because I think pretty much of every single one of us would ever have been in a space where someone scoffed at us, where someone laughed at us, someone derided what we were doing. And I wonder, what was your response? Because I love Nehemiah's response. And then I prayed. Then I prayed. That is such a brilliant, faithful response. It's so obvious, but it's so different to what's inside of us. I know many of us, myself included, in a situation like that, the first temptation, the first thing that we want to do is I want to react. I want to do something. I want to say something back. I want to do something back. I want to send photos and videos of the wall we're building. I want them to show what they're thinking, what they're saying is untrue. And yet he doesn't do any of that. He just steps back and he prays. Go and read the prayer. It's like a difficult prayer for me to pray because it is so different to my character and my nature. But his prayer here is God cursed these people who are against the work that you are doing. But I love that the fact that he takes that concern, the frustration, he takes what he is experiencing, he takes it to God and he starts there. James chapter 1 verse 20, it's not on the screens, paraphrasing, it says something almost word for word, like the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so often in 
my life, I've seen both sides of that coin. I remember when I was just a, a student, one night I responded to an altar call and the prayer line and just a whole bunch of people were praying. I can't even remember what the altar call was about. It wasn't salvation, it was something else. And we were just praying and the pastor came to me and he, he laid hands and he was just praying. And it felt like five minutes. It was probably 10 seconds. I don't know because I, you know those moments. And he just had one line that he was praying over and over and over. He was praying from the New King James. He was just praying, the wrath of God does not produce, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I know in that day something in my spirit shifted. And since that day I've seen countless times how people have responded from the anger, the wrath of man, and how the righteousness of God hasn't been accomplished. I've also seen how people have stepped back, humbled themselves, sought God's face, realized that right now my anger is not going to bring forth the righteousness of God. You know, just standing here today is one of those bittersweet moments. It's sweet because it is so amazing that this church opens their venue to us. It is so amazing that we have the opportunity to be here. But it is bitter because just across the road, there are some brilliant venues on the university campus. And in previous years, we were able to use them and we were able to just use a variety of different venues. There's a venue there called the Aula, which is just a beautiful theater. And we had Relationship Week and a whole bunch of other services in there years past. And then some people got angry about things rightly or wrongly, but the wrath of God did not produce the righteousness. The wrath of man did not produce the righteousness of God. And the wrath of man brought forth destruction. The wrath of man brought forth riots. And you know, since that day, not just our church, the church has been banned on campus. And it wasn't because we as the church did anything. It was because a bunch of other people decided that they want to try and produce righteousness. And all they produced was closing down more doors for the gospel. That in their desire for righteousness served from an ungodly place, produced in an ungodly place, that closed the door to the church. And over and over I've seen these times where we get angry within our silence Self and we respond in a human way. And Scripture tells us that does not produce the righteousness of God. And so opposition will come. We see here a leader who has a vision, who begins to work in a direction that he knows is inspired by God. And I promise you, if you begin to do that, opposition will come. One of the defining moments for you is going to be, how are you going to deal with the opposition that comes? In this context, Nehemiah steps back and he prays. Let that always be our first response. And then he prays. In verse 6, we read that at last the wall was completed to half its height. It hasn't been completed yet, but there's good progress going on around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. And this is any leader's dream. The people worked with enthusiasm. But I also believe the people worked with enthusiasm because of the leadership that Nehemiah had demonstrated before this. Because of the way in which he had worked with them, the way in which he had allowed them to be part of the process. The way in which he had prayed for months before he stepped out for the first time. And as he stepped out, God had been doing things in people's hearts. And they worked with enthusiasm because of his leadership. But they also worked with enthusiasm because God was moving within their hearts. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashodites heard that the work was going ahead and the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. I love the and in this list. Too often in 
in church and our spirituality, we throw away the ad. We say, I'm going to trust God, full stop. I'm going to pray, full stop. I'm going to put my faith in God, full stop. And I love how this passage here shows us that we can do both, that stepping out in the natural doesn't mean we're not trusting God. That there's a really important end here. Remember, we're seeing this man as an example of somebody who put feet to his faith, who took the book of James, which says that, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here is somebody who is showing us his faith by his works. And here, once again, his first response is prayer. Just like his first response when accusations came upon him, the first response when there was opposition, this opposition is now becoming concrete. It's taking a clear form. There's a definite threat. So what does he do? He stops and he prays. Prayer first. But then, and this is where so often, specifically in the charismatic church, we fall flat. Because then there's an appropriate response in the natural too. You see, he doesn't just pray and look at everybody and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Don't worry, go to bed. The enemy can't come near us. No, he prays. They pray. And then what do they do? Then they raise up and run. They pray, and then they say to the guys, got the sword, bring your swords. Stand guard, stand watch. It's a little bit like when we were students. Somebody said this thing to me as a first year, and it sort of stuck. He said, when it's exam time, it's really easy. You study as if you don't know how to pray. And then you pray as if you haven't studied. You study as if you don't know how to pray, and then you pray as if you haven't studied. We do both. And I believe God would have us as believers, as faithful believers, pray. Seek Him in prayer. Spend time praying over and over and over again, but then to step up in the appropriate action. I remember watching a a Reina Gonka video where he's speaking at the Hillsong Conference, and it's one of those big stadium events, like twenty or 30,000 people fill the stadium. And he's telling them this incredible story of how his testimony, and if you haven't watched it, I'd encourage you to get a hold of that video. It might be on Facebook, on YouTube or something. It's called Firefall. We've got the DVD somewhere at the office as well. Come and borrow, borrow it. We still have a DVD player. I realized in this week, because um, we have a whole bunch of, of CDs that we recorded in previous years with, uh, finance seminars, and, and we were thinking to hand them out, and then someone put up, say, but what if you don't have CD player? And I realized most of us probably don't have CD players anymore. So kind of we thought, well, let's pop it across to a podcast, and you can download the podcast. It's just a bit easier. But he's in this massive 30,000 thing, prayer con prayer thing, and he's talking about prayer and the importance of prayer, and it's in Australia. And then he poses this brilliant question. He says, what do you think would happen? What do you think would happen if every single Christian in Australia would spend the next week in prayer? What do you think would happen? And he paints this picture. What do you think would happen? And then in his best Reinhard Bonker possible way, and I'm not going to try the accent, but he says, you know what will happen? Absolutely nothing until somebody steps up out of the prayer meeting and goes and does what God tells them to do. And there I I love that tension that's there between the two. Yes, we are going to pray for the week, but at the end of the week of the prayer, there isn't, the action isn't, okay, now we've done our bit. The end of the week of prayer is, God, what have you been saying? God, what are you doing? God, how do you want us now to respond, to step out in faith? Yes, we're going to pray for the salvation of the nation. We start there. We trust God that you're going to turn hearts, but then we're going to go out and we're going to minister salvation to the nation. We need to find that way, and we see that so beautifully here. Faith and works. Prayer and guarding. We prayed and we guarded. And so the situation that you find yourself in, let's always do that. Let's start with prayer. And then respond with an appropriate response. I've heard some stories of people who have built churches. 
fantastically spiritual churches. Churches that they've built sort of on, on property or whatever. And incredible imagery that they've built into this church. Except for one or two minor problems. They never consulted an engineer or an architect. Because God would speak to them. And I think one of the challenges we, we learn in that is I can have the engineer and I can have the inspiration. As a matter of fact, I believe God would have us have both. That if you're going to build a, a church building or a house, yes, pray. Ask God what it was, what must look like. Get the instruction from God, but then do the responsible thing and have an engineer at least look at it or an architect. Is this going to last more than three weeks until the first thunderstorm comes? Sometimes as Christians, we want to get so spiritual that we forget just the appropriate natural action. Similarly with doctors and medicines. Yes, we pray for healing, but you know, sometimes the doctor just needs to cut out the splinter that's stuck in your back. Yes, we pray for healing, but sometimes the surgeon just needs to put the bones next to one another again so they can grow together. Yes, we pray for healing, but sometimes a need to take the meditation just to get my mind working normally again. We start with prayer. But then as we do that, we trust God to show us what is the appropriate action. We need to step away from the thought that taking action in the natural means I don't have faith. Because Scripture says that if I don't take action in the natural, I don't have faith. Faith without works is dead. Faith without action in the natural is dead faith. We see that as a great example here. You have faith for the wings. And then the people of Judah began to complain. These are the builders. They say the workers are getting tired. There's much, too much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build a wall by ourselves. And then the enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we're going to swoop down on them. We're going to kill them. We're going to end their work. And then the Jews who lived near the enemy started complaining. And they said, they're going to come from all directions and attack us. There will always be enemies of our faith, some seen and some unseen. There's a Sanballat and a Tobias who is an enemy of our faith. But, you know, a greater enemy of our faith is the voice that comes up from the inside. And that for us as leaders is often the biggest test of our leadership is what happens when discontent, disillusionment, fear begins to creep into our own ranks. And that's exactly what's happening here. There is fear rising up in the people of Judah. There's discontentment because they're working too hard and this is too impossible. We're not going to be able to do this. These are the same people who just a couple of weeks earlier were saying that this is God, let's do this. And the wall is already halfway built, but now somehow they find a reason to say, well, we can't do this. As much as I wish this was wrong, we are always going to have those people that we are leading. And then the enemies, they're also speaking. And it's amazing how these things coincide. How just when one person or one people begin to murmur and complain, suddenly all of the voices jump in. And they all start getting having a go at us. And then the Jews, those who are living outside of the city, they live near the enemy. They start complaining and fear begins to enter in. Disillusionment and fear. We should always work towards recognizing them that they are on an assignment to steal our faith. They are on an assignment. What is our response when there is fear and disillusionment? Well, our first response is the same response we've seen all along this evening. It's prayer. Be anxious for nothing. You know, many of us study, struggle with anxiety, and I understand, I get that it's real. You know, the first step that Scripture says when you're struggling with anxiety, the very first thing to do, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and, and prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. It starts by thankfully thanking God. How's that for a good start? Start by thanking God, and then by praying to God, bringing those things before God. Saying, God, I'm anxious about this. God, I'm worried about this. 
And you know the reality is, if I can be so blunt, if you're anxious about it, you mean you don't trust God with it. If you're anxious about it, if I'm worried about it, it means I don't think God has got this. And so I perhaps need to do something extra. And one of the keys in helping us get over our anxiety and we need to, and those of us, I know some of us with anxiety kind of grips us and it is real. I'm not knocking it in anywhere. I know if you're struck by anxiety, it is real and you need to get the right help. There are great people you can speak to. My wife spends a lot of time talking to people who are bound by anxiety in her counseling. Anxiety is real. What's going to help you to overcome your anxiety is thankfulness and prayer. Learning step by step that I don't have to control this because I'm going to trust God that He's going to control this. And maybe if I let it go, it's going to fall on the ground. But maybe if I let it go, God's going to capitalize it. And maybe, just maybe, what God's going to do with this is better than I would have done with it. Probably what God's going to do with it is different to what I would have done with it. But maybe it's better. And step by step, we let Him trust. We begin to learn to trust Him. Fear is simply the absence of faith. It's the opposite of faith. We can't have fear and faith. I've either got faith that God has got this and it's going to be okay, or I'm afraid. And that's a bit of an arm wrestle, and a power struggle in our lives. One of the reasons we come to church, one of the reasons we engage in praise. Worship is beautiful. Worship is sort of that place where we're intimate and we're close to Christ. You know, praise is that place where we're declaring how good and how great God is. And one of the things that for me has been most sad over this lockdown period is how much praise has been stripped away from church because praise is so much easier in community. So even with the Barbies this morning, it's not one Barbie singing praise, it's all of them. I've got a river of living water, a fountain that never will run dry. And we lose that song a little bit in our lives. We lose singing how big and how great and how awesome and how majestic God is. And on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, disillusionment begin to creep in. And then we're out of fellowship because of lockdown or whatever. We're not in the environment of praise. Next week, the hole just gets a little bit deeper and the next week a little bit deeper and the next week a little bit deeper. And praise often is that little Rope that gets thrown into the hole and it pulls us out. God says it gives us a garment of praise for our spirit of heaviness. Some of us need to be deliberate about our praise. Some of us deliberately need to go into our inner room, close the door, find on Spotify or Google Music or whatever it is, find some praise music and put it loud. And some of us sometimes were upset with loudness in church. I think we're going to have an interesting experience in heaven. We know that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and many more angels casting their crowns before falling before God, singing His worthy, singing His praise. And kind of, if you mathematical a little bit like I sometimes am, then you quickly do 10,000 times 10,000 and you realize that's 100 million. Just to start with, singing with a loud voice, I don't think that's going to be very soft. And then you read the Psalms. Read like Psalm 145 to 150. It's about loud, clanging cymbals and drums. And there's a place for intimacy and quietness. There's definitely that. But there's a place where we just in the spirit just are loud. We allow faith to overcome our fear. As leaders, this is going to be one of our biggest challenges is how do we impart faith in the midst of fear? So apart from our prayer, apart from being anxious for nothing, apart from in our own discipleship walk, understanding that praise to a large extent is what overcomes fear. For us as leaders, what do we have to do? And we see what Nehemiah does here in chapter 4, verse 14. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people. And I said to them, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I love how he starts pointing people towards God. 
He doesn't start by saying this is a good idea and this is precious and this is special, whatever. He starts by saying, remember God. Remember God. And then he points them towards the reason for what we are doing. This isn't just about me and about you. This is about our legacy. This is about our families. This is about their safety. He brings inspired leadership. He calls them together and he reminds them of the vision and the importance of what we are doing. Vision is a little bit like a bucket that has a hole in it and drip, drip, drip. The vision leaks out. If you read in leadership literature, you'll read often the vision leaks. Vision is to be reminded. We have to remind people of the vision over and over and over. It leaks. It's like this bucket with a hole in it. And if we're not filling it in all the time, we leave it for a while and the next thing, the vision is gone and people have forgotten what the vision is. And Nehemiah realizes that he brings them together and he says, hey guys, there's a vision. There's a purpose. But let's do it starting with a focus on God. He brings encouragement. He stirs up their faith. He points them towards God and he reminds them why they are doing what they are doing. Then I explain to the nobles and the officials and all the people, the work is very spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. And when you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to whoever, wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. Isn't this a crazy, beautiful example again of faith defeat? When you hear the trumpet, run, we're going to gather together where the fight is, and God is going to fight for us. It could have been so easy to say, just carry on working. Don't worry, God will fight for us. That's not what he's saying. The implication here is, as we come together, as we draw our swords, God is going to fight for us. That as we rally together to where the invasion is, we are going to trust God that he will fight for us. There's going to be faith and there's going to be works. We trust God that he will protect the city, but we also know that he will protect the city through a human hand. We also know that he has called us to be gods over the city. And so when we exercise our faith, we pray and we trust God and we respond appropriately. And I love the picture that we have here in verse 21. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset. Half the men were always on guard and half men were working is the implication there. Sort of in a coming together, we're all spread out, but let's all remember one thing. We are a team. We're in this together. Teamwork makes the dream work. And if we lose that teamwork element, no matter what we are doing, we can realize we are probably not going to succeed. It is so much easier doing something together than doing it alone. Speaking of which, I guess you should say well done to all the Chelsea fans around. You can repent later, but we say well done now. Okay. It's one of the few places in Scripture where we read that God commands His blessing. God commands His blessing when brethren dwell together in unity. And so as a leader, here a little tip from something that I've learned. Fight and work towards the unity in your team. Proficiency in your team is important. Ability in the team is important. All of the other things that your team needs to do, the job descriptions, the communication channels, all of those things are really, really key. But if you don't have unity, you're not going to succeed. If you do have unity, you can go with boldness and you can know God is going to command blessing on this team. We see that even the Tower of Babel, they want to do something that God's hand is not upon. They want to build a tower up to the heavens. And what does God say? He says in his eternal community, we need to do something about this because the people are united. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. There is an incredible power, God-ordained power in our unity. And so for those of us who are leaders of teams or going to lead teams, great idea. Right at the beginning, before you do anything, stop and focus on unity. How can we get people's hearts to connect together. 
take more time to do that at the beginning, and later on you will reap the fruit of it. If there's animosity in your team, it's so much harder to accomplish anything. But if you can find a way to get that team to be unified, the team to believe in one another, the team to trust one another, the team to know that if someone over there sounds a trumpet, we are all going to run there. Not one of us are going to drop the ball. Firstly, no, God commands his blessing there. And you can know with confidence that that team is going to go far. Take time to develop and fight for unity within your team. About this time, some of the men, and so then a whole bunch of stuff happens, and we jump to the next chapter, chapter 5. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields and vineyards and homes to get food during the famine. Others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and our vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like those. Yet, we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. And then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. I love his response here. He was very angry, but he didn't respond immediately. Scripture tells us, after thinking it over. He embraces the hard conversation people bring and injustice to him, but he just doesn't just jump immediately at the impulse of correcting the injustice. He steps back. He thinks it over. I'm pretty convinced he prayed over. He stepped back. He calmed down. He allowed the anger to subside. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so he steps back and he thinks it over. He calms down. Then he responds. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you were selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. As leaders, we have to find ways to engage with the difficult conversations. We cannot ignore the difficult conversation. Whether the point they're bringing to the table is justified or unjustified, if it doesn't get addressed, it's going to break down the unity within the group. In this context, it needs to be addressed because it is a real injustice too. People are being sold into slavery and there are a bunch of wealthy people and, you know, finance for me has always been an interesting thing, a little bit from my background as well, my academic background and then coming into church. and You know, one of the things that I found most puzzling about finance, it's how people pray For God's blessing and breakthrough in specific ways, financial ways. And then step out and judge those who have that which they've just prayed for. They judge those who are wealthy and those who have financial blessing, etc., etc. They're so quick to judge the people who have the very things they're praying for. And I always found that so fascinating. How we can't see how, how quick we are to judge people for having what we're praying for. And so the interesting thing here is the instruction, and nowhere in Scripture is the instruction that it's wrong to be rich. The instruction here is when you are wealthy, don't abuse that. When you ate broken. He doesn't say here to those who are wealthy, we need to be equal and everybody needs to have the same. No, he says you are wealthy, you have been abusing those who are not wealthy. That's wrong. That's the injustice. 
The injustice isn't that there are some wealthy and there are some not wealthy. The injustice is the abuse from the wealthy. And that's what upsets me. And that's what's wrong in the eyes of Nehemiah. I believe that's what's wrong in the eyes of God when there's abuse. So he goes to the wealthy and he says, guys, stop selling. Don't let your family members sell one another into slavery because they have to pay you interest. That's wrong. That's where the injustice is. And he rebukes them. and He says, guys, never, ever do this again. And they have a strong conversation. He recalls the priests and he makes them take a vow before God that they're not going to do that behavior again. But when they left that meeting, there were still the wealthy and there were still the less wealthy. It wasn't like suddenly there was a redistribution of wealth that we kind of sometimes see people advocate for. And now suddenly everybody is equal. You guys know the thing about socialism, the big problem with socialism is pretty soon you run out of other people's money. But we don't see that form of socialism here. What we do see is a restriction on abuse and ape-breaking of taking people and pushing them further and further into poverty. And poverty is very much ungodly. Verse 14. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. Nehemiah here demonstrates that he wants for people. He doesn't want from people. The previous governors, they had taken, in addition to the tax that they're paying to sort of the other, to the emperor, etc., etc., and to the king, the governor could take his tax. And what he says here, in all my years of being the governor, I never took my tax. I could have, I had a legal right to say, you must give to me, except I wanted for the people. I didn't want from the people. I wanted to lift them up. I didn't want to take from them. I wanted to see them strengthened. I didn't want to see them weaken. And as leaders, if we can find a way to always have that in our hearts, to wherever we are leading people, to ask, how can I lift you up? How can I make better for you rather than how can you make better for me? Because if he was like many governments all across the world, a typical politician, he would have simply said, give me, give me, give me. Yes, you're going to have less, but that's okay. This is about me. I want me. And sadly, the history of politics around the globe is one of leaders enriching themselves. And here Jesus comes in the midst of that later on. And Nehemiah comes and he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Perhaps I have a legal right to take from you but I'm not going to because I want for you. I don't want from you. On the contrary, in verse 16, I also devoted myself to working on the wall. So not only is he the one who's sort of orchestrating this, he doesn't count himself better than the rest. He is also on the wall working. I devoted myself to working on the wall and I refused to acquire any land. I didn't want to take from anybody. I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. This thing is what we're all doing. So as the leader, I'm doing it. I'm not sitting back and watching the other people do the hard work. I'm leading by example. And every person who reports to me, because he came with a whole entourage from the king when he arrived in Judah, he said, all of those servants, they must work too. I asked for nothing. Watch this. Even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, Besides all of the visitors from other lands, the provisions are paid for each day out of his own pocket. One ox, six choice sheep or goats, a large number of poultry. I love this. Every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. 
Yet I refuse to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Generosity wins hearts. Don't know if I must give that secret away, but let me do it anyway. I learned it as a student leading missions teams. Right from the start, sort of our very first team meeting, something that I would typically do is I would make sure there is food, enough food, probably not all kinds of wine, but food, tasty food, good food. This is when I was just a student that I paid for. No one ever told me to do that, but you know what I realized? When you start off there, you're communicating something about how you value your team. And you're taking a big step forward in terms of them buying into what it is God is telling you to do. If right from the outset people are on your team and they know this leader wants for me, this leader is generous. I'm not going to walk in here and the leader is going to say, give, 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 take, take, take. He just wants. But when they have the opportunity, they're going to give. And this, in his case, wasn't just a once-off. I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials. I regularly fed them. Never mind the people who came from far away. The very people that were meant to give me a food allowance, I was feeding them. From my own pocket. I believe this is a sign of a, a godly, faithful leader. I'm leading these people in faith. I'm leading them because I want the best for them. And he supplied their wine as well. I'm sure they loved him for that. And then verse 19, the end of chapter 5. Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. He understood that there is a blessing in all that he was giving. Yes, he was giving much of his time. He was giving much. I mean, he was living in the king's palace. In the king's presence regularly. Serving in the king's court. And here he gives all of that up. He comes and moves to Judah, to Jerusalem, a city that is falling apart. With his own hands, obviously with the help of everyone else, he begins to rebuild it. And they're rebuilding this thing. And he's paying for it out of his own pocket for the food to keep everyone going. Not for every meal, but he's providing meals regularly. He's providing wine. He's investing everything of himself into this project. And I love this bit here. And he looks to God for his reward. He doesn't ever say to one of the people, you must reward me for what I'm doing and what I have done. At great personal cost, at great personal sacrifice, I'm here to see this wall rebuilt. And my prayer, oh God, is that God will remember him for all that he has done for these people and bless him for it. He keeps his eyes focused on God. He looks for his reward from God, his provision from God, his answers from God. He says, God, that there is a blessing in what I'm doing. But the blessing is not from the people, God. The blessing is from you. It might be from time to time that that blessing comes through a human hand, God. But I'm not looking to them for the blessing. God, I'm looking to you. Keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. Can we stand together? I'd love for us to pray. Jesus, I want to thank you this afternoon for your word. I thank you, God, that there's just so much, Lord, in stories like this, just the little bit that I've touched on today, God, of your goodness and of your grace, of your truth. God, there's so much example in the life of Nehemiah, Lord, of a man who feared you and a man who sought you, a man who followed you and a man who led in a way that pleased you, a man who accomplished much in his leading. God, I pray for every single one of us that we may grow in that, that we may lead in the way that you would have us lead, that we would lead in a way that lifts others up, Lord, in a way that empowers them, Lord God. In a way, Lord Jesus, where we want for them and not from them. Father, I pray for every one of us that as we lead, Lord, and resistance comes, disillusionment creeps in, Lord, and enemies begin to speak and murmuring rises. God, I pray. But our first port of call would always be you, Jesus.
that we would step away from any action in the natural God, from any anger that kind of we think is going to bring forth righteousness in him. But like Nehemiah, we would pray. We would seek your face, Lord, and every action would be birthed there. God, I pray that we would be a people who have feet to our faith. Whether it's in going to live village, Lord, whether it's going like the song we sang, Lord, driven by love to the ends of the earth, Lord Jesus. That there would be an abundance of faith that drives our feet. And Jesus, just as we spoke last time, thank you so much that you are the awesome, awesome leader who came down from heaven who left the king's palace to come and dwell in a broken down city amongst us, to come and rebuild, to come and heal, to come and restore. That you are the one, Jesus, who inspires us. You are the one who leads us. You are the one who calls us together, who unifies us, who rallies us, who demonstrated the ultimate love giving everything of yourself, by not wanting anything from us, Lord, but by, by, by wanting everything for us. And God, I pray that even as we study Nehemiah, that we may grow in our love for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time this afternoon. It's been great having you here. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.